This is a Reconstruction Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF form. The Greatness of the Great Commission, Christian Enterprise in a Fallen World, written by Kenneth L. Gentry, Jr., published in 1990 by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, narrated by Joseph Spurgeon. Chapter 4, The Exercise of Sovereignty And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Matthew 28, 18-19a As I noted in chapter 3, the Great Commission is a kingly commission, exhibiting the sovereignty of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In this chapter, we will look more closely at the implications of the sovereign, kingly authority grant received by Christ, which is the legal basis of the Great Commission. As we do so, we will discover the mediation of the authority of that covenantal sovereignty. Covenantal hierarchy is clearly set forth in Matthew 28, 18-19a, cited above. Here we may trace the hierarchical flow of the authority. 1. Authority is original in and derivative from the triune God. All authority has been given, obviously by God. 2. Meteorial authority is granted as redemptive reward to the God-man, Jesus Christ, to me. 3. Christ commissions Christians administratively to promote obedience to that authority. Go, therefore. 4. Self-conscious submission to that authority is to spread to all the world, make disciples of all the nations. This is why the heralds of Christ's kingdom are called ambassadors. In the Great Commission, the claim of Christ to have received from God all authority in heaven on earth formalizes judicially what was already true metaphysically, God's rulership over all. That is, Christ in his eternal person as God the Son always possesses authority in himself. It is intrinsic to his very divine being. But in terms of the economy of redemption, the outworking of salvation, the second person of the Trinity humbled himself from his exalted position and made himself of no reputations, Philippians 2.7, by taking on a human body and soul. He did this in order to secure redemption for his people, by living under the law and suffering the judicial consequences of its breach by them. The judicial declaration of the acceptance of his redemptive labor by the Father was at the resurrection, which historical event led to his being granted all authority as a conquering king. But what is entailed in this grant of all authority in heaven and on earth, and what is be the outreach program of the church based on this grant? The one who issues this great commission to his people is he who possesses all authority in heaven and in earth. This same terminology is applied to God the Father himself. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, Matthew 11:25. God is Lord and Governor of all. Strong Pharaoh was raised up so that he might be destroyed in order to bring glory to God, Exodus 9.16. The mighty Assyrian Empire was but a rod of anger in his hand. The powerful Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar was his servant. The conquering Persian king Cyrus was used by God as a shepherd and as his anointed for God's holy purpose. The Medes were his own weapon. Indeed, he is the king of all the earth. God's lordship is unbounded in Scripture and Christ lays claim to that boundless authority in the Great Commission. Hence, the divine nature of the Commission. It is not an authority bestowed ecclesiastically, traditionally, philosophically, or politically, but a divine, derived one. The Great Commission comes to us with a very bold statement. Thus said the Lord. The resurrection was the first step in Christ's exaltation. 
the ascension his concluding step. In fact, the ascension is essentially applied in the resurrection. Both events are combined in the one fact of Christ's exaltation. The resurrection is the root and the beginning of the ascension. The ascension is the blossom and crown of the resurrection. The resurrection marks the entrance into the heavenly state, the ascension into the heavenly sphere. Within days of the resurrection, Christ completed his two-phased exaltation, when he ascended into heaven in fulfillment of Daniel 7, 13, and 14. This passage is quite important in this regard, though often misconstrued. According to a number of scholars from various schools of thought, the Daniel 7 passage forms the prophetic backdrop of the Great Commission, as is evident as least as early as Hippolytus, A.D. 170-236. Daniel 7, 13-14 reads, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Clearly this coming was his ascension to heaven. He came up to the Ancient of Days. Just as clearly it was his enthronement as king, to him was given a dominion. Consequently, it breathes the air of universal authority, that all the peoples might serve him. Thus is related to the Great Commission, for the Son of Man there is given all authority in heaven and on earth. Regarding the actual implementation of the work set before the church by our Lord, Puritan commentator Matthew Poole long ago wrote of the important function of the Go Therefore clause in the commission. Having declared his power, he delegates it. In fact, so far as earth is concerned, the dominion is only a matter of right or theory, a problem to be worked out. Hence what follows. Thus the command may be paraphrased. All power has been given to me on earth. Go ye therefore, and make the power a reality. The connective therefore, standing between the declaration of all authority, and the exhortations to go and make disciples, and most appropriate and important here. It has a peculiar force in the present connection. It draws a conclusion from the gift of all authority bestowed on Jesus. It puts all his power and his authority behind the command to evangelize the world. This shows that what otherwise would be absolutely impossible now becomes gloriously possible, yea, an assured reality. The task set before this small band of men would have been overwhelming were it not undergirded with the universal authority claimed by Christ. Hence, the significance of the therefore connecting verses 18 with verse 19. An exact literal translation of the Greek of verse 19a reads, Going, therefore, disciples ye all the nations. The going is a translation of a participle in the Greek. Although they express actions, participles are not true verbs, but rather verbal adjectives. On a purely grammatical basis, then, participles are dependent upon main verbs for their full significance. Thus, they cannot stand alone. Hence a writer's dreaded fear of the dangling participle. Some have argued from the grammar here that since the word translated go, literally going, is a participle, it may not properly be viewed as a command to the disciples, and that participles do not have mood. They point out that if it were intended to express a command to go, it should have been expressed by a verb in the imperative mood. The position drawn from this grammatical argument is that Christ's command actually should be understood as, wherever you happen to be, make disciples. Of course it is true that wherever we happen to be, it is incumbent upon us to make disciples. Nevertheless, grammatically, a participle can carry the force of the main verb's action. This is because the participle is so closely tied to the main verb that it partakes in sense the verb's force. And the participle here contextually does have the imperative force of the main verb, despite it not having the imperative form. Furthermore, that this is actually a command to go 
may be seen in the history of the early church contained in Acts. There we witness the going of the disciples into the world. In addition, the related commissions of Christ, which urged the progression of the gospel from Jerusalem outward to all the world, evidence the outward-reaching, militant expansion of Christ's concern, and suggest the understanding from Matthew 28:19. The point, when all is said and done, is that Christ expected his new covenant people to go, that is, to be militant in their promotion of the true faith. Under the old covenant, Israel as a nation was confined to a land with well-defined parameters. She was to exercise her influence among the nations from within that land, and by example as she remained in the midst of the land, Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. Never is she authorized by God to conquer nations outside of her borders for purposes of annexation. In fact, rather than her going to the nations, the nations were to come to her. Now, with the transformation of the church into her new covenant phase, and her development from immaturity to maturity, Galatians 3:23-26. Militancy characterizes her energies. She is to go forth into all the world, sowing seed, unshackled by geographic considerations. For a very important purpose, the church is in the world, John 17:15, to go forth with kingly authority to confront the nations with the demands of God. Thus, the commission makes reference to his authority over the earth, verse 18b, and our obligation to enforce that authority over the nations, verse 19a. The Great Commission sends down from above an obligation upon God's people. It can no more be reduced to the good idea than the Ten Commandments can be deemed the Ten Suggestions. It is not an option for the people of God. It is an obligatory task laid upon those who are not only created in the image of God, as all men are, but who are ethically renewed in that image by the saving mercies of Christ. It is an obligation that is laid upon His people who dwell on the earth here and now, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Through hierarchical covenantal arrangement, we are under obligation to inform the people of the world of the ownership of all things by the Lord God and the authority of His Son over all. We are to proclaim that redemption is necessary for acceptance by God and salvation from eternal judgment. We are to instruct men of their consequent responsibility to serve God in all of life that results from such glorious redemption. According to its very words, the mission of the commission is what truly may be called great. Christ commands, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. But what does this mean? The significance of the word nations is of serious consequence. Its apprehension has become a point of dispute in a recent debate among evangelicals. Because of what we noted above, we must see the hierarchical obligation of the Great Commission in its command to go make disciples of all nations. This command is remarkable here because of its contrast to Christ's earlier command, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. The gospel of salvation was initially to the Jew first, so it was necessary that it began its work and influence in Jerusalem. But Matthew's record of the appearance of the non-Jewish Magi from the east, Matthew 2, 1 and 2, his teaching regarding the coming into the kingdom of people from the east and the west, Matthew eight eleven, the kingdom parables involving the world, Matthew 13, and so forth, make it clear that Christ's ministry always expected the eventual inclusion of the non-Jewish nations. This was not some new and unexpected program shift, for even the Old Testament held forth the promise of the salvation of non-Jews. In fact, the apostles frequently cited the Old Testament prophecies in defense of their reaching out to the Gentiles. But some evangelicals tend to understand the command to mean nothing more than, in spreading the gospel, no part of the world is to be omitted. Consequently, it merely means that the purpose of the church in this present age is that of a witness. 
the Great Commission is said to involve the salvation of individuals from among the nations, because making a disciple in the biblical sense is an individual thing. Who among us would disagree with these statements, as far as they go? Surely Christ's words, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, cannot mean less than that the gospel is a universal gospel to be proclaimed to people in all nations. And just as surely it is held by all evangelicals that the Great Commission demands the salvation of individual sinners from their own sins. But is this all that it entails? Does the Great Commission merely seek the proclamation of the gospel to individuals in all nations? That is, does it only seek the salvation of scattered individuals from throughout the world? Or is there more here than we may have supposed? Christ's command is to make disciples of all the nations. The Greek word translated nations here is ethna, the plural of ethnos, which is an interesting word that serves a vital function in the Great Commission. Let us consider the word meaning itself and note how it is more appropriate for the Great Commission than any other similar word might have been. The meaning of ethnos, its etymological derivation. The word ethnos was common in the Greek language from ancient times. It is widely agreed among etymologists that it was derived from another Greek word, ethos, which means mass or host or multitude, bound by the same manners, customs, and other distinctive features, and was ultimately derived from the Sanskrit svadha, which means own state, habit. Therefore, ethos contemplates a body of people living according to one custom and rule. In fact, ethos itself is found in the New Testament and means habit, custom. Luke 22.39, Acts 25.16. Returning to the specific word found in the Great Commission, Greek lexicographer Joseph Thayer lists five nuances of the term ethnos. 1. A multitude, associated or living together. 2. A multitude of individuals of the same nature or genus. 3. Race or nation. 4. Foreign nations not worshipping the true God, pagans, Gentiles. 5. Gentile Christians. Consequently, the word ethnos speaks not so much of stray individuals as such, but of collected masses of individuals united together by a common bond, as in culture, society, or nation. 2. Its New Testament usage. The root idea of the word ethnos is easily discernible in Acts 17.26, and he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. In addition, the same is true of Revelation 7.9, where a multitude of saints is gathered from every nation, and all tribes and peoples and tongues. As a matter of fact, the national, cultural, collective significance of the word is pointed to by the use of ethnos in a number of places outside of Matthew in the New Testament. The Jews, as a distinct culture and national entity, are even called an ethnos in the New Testament in many places, showing the term does not necessarily mean Gentile in the sense of non-Jew. In fact, the term ethnos, when applied by Jews to others, is for the very purpose of distinguishing the national culture, including religion, tradition, manners, etc., of non-Jewish peoples from Jewish national culture. As such, it involves the collective or corporate idea of a people's culture and is not tied merely to stray individuals. In addition, in the form found in Matthew 28:19, the phrase, all the nations, is also found in several other verses. In those verses, it speaks of national units or whole cultures as such. 3. It's Matthewan function. Interestingly, a study of Matthew's own employment of the term ethnos provides statistical evidence in our favor. In Matthew, 9 out of 14 appearances of the term, or 71% of its occurrences, are used in a way clearly referring to nations as such. Matthew 4.15, In two other instances, or 14%, the term is probably to be understood as betokening nation. Matthew 6.32 and 25.32. 
The two instances, or 14%, that probably involve the generalistic conception Gentiles, or people, are Matthew 10.5 and 20.19. The remaining instance is found in the text under discussion, Matthew 28.19. In point of fact, it should be noted, virtually all major English translations render the term in the Great Commission with the English nations, rather than Gentiles. Linsky clearly applies the plural, ta ethne, of Matthew 28.19 to nations, when he argues for infant baptism from the passage on the basis of there being children who compose such a large part of every nation. Long holds the same view when he comments on the phrase, nations, as nations are to be Christianized. In their lexicon, Arndt and Gingrich provide two entries in explication of the term ethnos. One, nation, people, and two, heathen, pagans, Gentiles. Under the first listing, they place Matthew 28:19. It would seem that the term ethnos, which Christ employed in the Great Commission, carries with it an important significance. He calls his followers to make disciples of all the nations. He does not merely to say, Disciple all men, although this lesser point is true also. In that case, he would have chosen the Greek word anthropos, which would allow the reference to indicate men as individual humans, rather than as collected races, cultures, societies, or nations. Neither does he call for the discipling of all kingdoms, basileii, as if he had laid claim only to political authority. Rather, he calls for the discipling of all the nations, ethnos, involving men as individuals united together in all their social, cultural labors and relations. The discipling work of the Great Commission, then, aims at the comprehensive application of Christ's authority over men through conversion. As the number of converts increase, this providentially leads to the subsuming under the authority of Christ whole institutions, cultures, societies, and governments. As Matthew Henry put it centuries ago, Christianity should be twisted in with the national constitutions. The kingdoms of the world should become Christ kingdoms, and their kings, the church's nursing fathers. Do your utmost to make the nations Christian nations. Christ the mediator is setting up a kingdom in the world, bringing the nations to be his subjects. This understanding of the hierarchical administration of the sovereignty of the Great Commission helps us understand certain of the universalistic-sounding passages that speak of redemption. Christ saves individuals, to be sure. Praise God for that glorious truth. I myself am an individual. But his plan and goal was to save masses of individuals and the cultures that arise from their labors as well. His plan of one of comprehensive salvation. This may be noted in certain universalistic passages. Although we are prone to speak of Christ as my personal Savior, we too often overlook the fact that he is also declared to be the Savior of the world. There are several passages which speak of the worldwide scope of redemption. In John 1.29, John the Baptist sees Jesus and utters these words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 John 4.14, we read, The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John 3.16.17 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. John 12.47 1 John 2.2 2 teaches that he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul conceives of Christ's active labor thus, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now these passages clearly present Christ in his redemptive labors. In them we learn that he is called the Lamb of God. He takes away sin. His purpose in coming was to save. He provides propitiation for the sinner. He is reconciling sinners to himself. What does the Greek word cosmos, translated world, mean in these passages that speak of the scope of redemption? 
This noun originally had to do with a building erected from individual parts to form a whole. It came to be applied to relations between men, as in the case of ordering soldiers and armies and governments in matters of state. Eventually, cosmos came to speak of the well-ordered universe. It was an important term in Greek philosophy. In the New Testament, the word cosmos spoke of the sum of all created beings, including both the animate and inanimate creation. Acts 17.24 speaks of God creating the world and all that is in it. God created an orderly creation, as is evident from Genesis 1. Hence, he created a cosmos. The word world is employed in the preceding passages regarding world salvation refer, then, to the world as the orderly system of men and things. That is, the world that God created and loves is his creation as he intended it. A world in subjection to man, who is in turn to be in subjection to God. Psalm 8. A point frequently overlooked in the passages cited above is that those verses clearly speak of the world system focus of his sovereign redemption. Thus, in each of the passages passing under our scrutiny, we have reference to the aim of full and free salvation for the cosmos, the world as a system. That is, Christ's redemptive labors are designed to redeem the created order of men and things. Hence, the Great Commission command to disciple all nations involves not only all men as men, anthropos, but all men and their cultural connections, ethnos, Matthew 28:19. For Christ is Lord of all, Acts 10:36. All of society is to be subdued to the gospel of the sovereign Christ. Consequently, as A.T. Robertson marveled regarding the Great Commission, it is the sublimest of all spectacles to see the risen Christ, without money or army or state, charging this band of 500 men and women with world conquest, and bringing them to believe it is possible, and to undertake it with serious passion and power. Yet that is precisely what Christ did. As Chamblin put it, when speaking of the giving of such authority to Christ, God the Father now wills that Jesus' existent authority, 729, 8 verse 9, be exercised universally. Salvation is designed for the world as a system, cosmos, involving men and their cultural relations, ethnos. Obviously, then, it must follow that its effects should be pressed in every aspect of life and culture, not just in the interpersonal realm. In fact, Christ's commission claims just that in two very important phrases. One, when Christ lay claims to all authority, he is specifying that comprehensiveness of his authority. Christ here claims every form of authority and command of all means necessary for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Or to put it another way, he claims unlimited authority in every area. No form of authority escapes his sovereign grant. Two, when he adds in heaven and on earth, he is specifying the realm of the exercise of his authority. He is claiming his authority is equally intense on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the authority he holds in heaven over the affairs of its redeemed residents and the holy angels is held in the affairs of earth over men as well. Christ was given all authority in heaven so that he can make use of all the resources of heaven and all authority on earth so that he can turn every institution and power and person on earth to account. Truly Christ is claiming unlimited authority over every realm. He is not claiming it solely over the limited realms of the interpersonal life or over a few select realms such as the family or the church. This is made quite clear in various pregnant expressions applied to him later in the New Testament. Philippians 2, 9-11 contains a strong statement in this regard. Therefore God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This corresponds well with what is written in Ephesians 1, 20 through 22. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. These passages are supplemented by several other verses, as well as the revelation statement that he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Regarding the civil political area of man's culture, which is perhaps the stickiest aspect of that question, this explains why kings are obligated to rule by him, under him, and as his ministers to promote his law according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The earthly political authority to which Satan arrogantly laid claim, by which he oppressed the nations, and which he offered to Christ, was righteously won by Christ's glorious redemptive labor. His authority over all the nations demands we preach his crown rights over all men and all their institutions, cultures, societies, and nations. The saving of multitudes of individuals must eventually lead to a cultural Christianization under Christ's rule and to his glory by his providence, in conformity with God's creational purpose. This world order was designed to have man set over it to the glory of God. This is why, at the very beginning of human history, unfallen man was a cultural creature. The salvation wrought by the implementation of the Great Commission does not merely involve a static entry into the land's book of life. It involves also a life-transforming change within the center of man's being. That is, it is not just something entered in the record book of heaven in order to change man's status, legal justification based on the finished work of Christ. Certainly it involves that, but there is more. It also involves something affected on earth in man to change his character, spiritual sanctification generated by the continuing work of the Holy Spirit. Christ's saving work sovereignly overwhelms man and affects him a new birth, thereby making the believer a new creature or a new man, creating in him a new character, and that he has been resurrected and made alive from spiritual death. It brings him all spiritual blessings, puts him under the power of grace, ensures the enjoying of the Holy Spirit and of Christ, which imparts the power of God within, and secures the intercession of Christ in his behalf. All of this must lead to confrontation with and the altering of non-Christian culture. For Paul commands, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12-13 Paul is not saying we are to work for our salvation, as if guilty sinners could merit God's favor, but that the salvation we possess must be worked out into every area of our lives. In short, we are to work out the salvation that is now ours. Consequently, we are driven by divine obligation and salvific duty to expose the works of darkness, Ephesians 5.11, by being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, Matthew 5.13 and 14. Salvation, then, exercises a gradualistic, dynamic, and transforming influence in the life of the individual convert to Christ. This is progressive sanctification, but this process is not limited to a hypothetical, exclusively personal realm of ethics. As salvation spreads to others, it also establishes a motivated, energetic kingdom of the faithful who are to organize to operate as a nation producing the fruit of the kingdom. Thus, in 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5, we read, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The one who claims all authority in heaven and on earth, and who has been given a name above every name that is named, is he who has commissioned us to destroy every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Not some thoughts or interpersonal thoughts only. This is to be done imperceptibly from within, not by armed revolution from without, as we do business until he comes. Luke 19.13
There is another angle from which we may expect the cultural transforming effect of redemption, the negative angle, the correction of sin. As poetically put in the great Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. The salvation that Christ brings is salvation from sin. His redemption is designed to flow far as the curse is found. The angel who appeared to Joseph instructed him, You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. Now then, how far is the curse of sin found? How wide-ranging is sin? The curse of sin is found everywhere throughout the world. It permeates and distorts every area of man's life. For this reason, Christ commissioned to his church, as recorded in Luke 24:47 and implied in Matthew 28:19 through 20 reads, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Again we are confronted with salvation, here via repentance from sin, for all the nations. If man is totally depraved, then that depravity extends to and accounts for the pervasive corruption of all of man's cultural activities. Instead of the Midas touch, fallen man has the Midas touch. The sinner's touch reduces the quality, value, and effectiveness of everything he does, compared to what he would do were he sinless. Surely salvation from sin evolves salvation from all the implications of sin, including institutional, cultural, social, and political sins. And just as surely the Christian should authoritatively confront sinful conduct and labor toward its replacement with the righteous alternative. Incredibly, one best-selling evangelical author has even castigated John the Baptist because of his preaching against the sin of the political authority in his realm, King Herod Antipas. John the Baptist rebuked Herod Antipas for taking his half-brother Philip's wife. Could it be that John, who was imprisoned and later beheaded by Herod because of this reproof, may have needlessly cut his ministry to Israel short by claiming his remarks at the wrong target? This mistaken argument logically would lead to a rebuke of Christ himself for calling the same Herod a fox. Luke 13.32 Could it be that Jesus needlessly cut his ministry to Israel short by aiming his remarks at the wrong target? Surely not. We have seen that the Great Commission directs Christians to pursue the promotion of Christ's sovereign rule over men through salvation. Indeed, it directs our labors to redeeming not only individuals, but the whole lives of individuals, which generate their culture. Christ avoided terms that easily could have been given a lesser significance when he commanded his followers to disciple all nations, and he ensured that we understand the commission properly by undergirding it with the redemptive reality of his possessing all authority in heaven and on earth. I will return to this theme to emphasize the prospect of its victory in chapter 7, where I will consider covenantal succession. Herschel Hobbes has preserved for us an insightful comment most appropriate to our study. Dr. Gaines S. Dobbins was asked, but is not conversion the end of salvation? He replied, yes, but which end? That is the question before us. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com 
to volunteer as a narrator, or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.